Yeah, I mean, it's we we went down a path at least where we kind of have to be big at this right. point. And I'd say as I've you know, because we started in started as a side hustle, my co-founder and I in twenty. 13 so you know on the calendar that's you know eight years and you know we've now grown this thing till we have about 20 employees we're you know doing well on amazon we're in a thousand stores but very very taxing and we're in like go 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 mode like we can't i mean i took my first vacation all year and i really only took one day off right and so because we have to answer to investors and constantly keep raising money where there's a, you know, I, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? I think about right. someone that has a smaller business with a small team or no team, and they can go take a lunch break and go work out in the middle of the day where I'm always on my computer, I'm always on my phone, I'm always answering communication. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, Go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe bomb today. And that's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is currently the CEO of Get Busy, Inc. He has his degree in finance and entrepreneurship and also is an ultra-endurance athlete. And that encompasses multiple sports, much to my chagrin. I feel like I need to kind of pick up the pace. Welcome to the show, Alex French. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Yeah, thanks for uh, taking time out of your day. Um, you know, like I was saying before we got going, we kind of have the entrepreneurship in common, except that uh, I feel like you kind of operate probably on a, a different level than where I operate, where you're accountable to probably a slew of employees. And I think you said you raised VC for, for the company. So there's all kinds of people you have to answer to. And I just kind of live in my own little world. <laughs> so uh, it'll be interesting to talk to you about kind of what, what you got going on. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely been a, a wild ride and there, you know, pros and cons to every type of business. Right. So right. it's fun to be around a lot of people. You know, I'm at the office. We're kind of in a little photo studio here. Um, it's great. We get to interact, but at the same time, there's a lot of kind of weight that comes along with having employees and, and, uh, you know, a lot of investors. So pros and cons for sure. Oh yeah. And, you know, I, I often see the phrase and I don't know how much, time you spend in kind of i'll say entrepreneurship circles i mean online it could be anywhere from uh probably not reddit because that's that's turned into like a, a circle jerk sorry reddit um <laughs> that subreddit is not very useful most of the time uh, but you know forums private facebook groups anything like that but often i see people say things like there's what is it? There's no advantage in thinking small. Like you don't help anybody by by trying to keep your business small. If you make it large and affect more people, then you're doing more positive things in the world. So um, even though you're accountable to people, you probably have the right idea by trying to share your message and what you're doing uh, with the company with a larger swath of people. Yeah, I mean, it's we we went down a path at least where we kind of have to be big at this right. point. And I'd say as I've, you know, because we started in, started as a side hustle, my co-founder and I in 2013. So, you know, on the calendar, that's, you know, eight years. And, you know, we've now grown this thing till we have about 20 employees. We're, you know, doing well on Amazon. We're in a thousand stores, but very, very taxing. And we're in like, go, 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 go mode. Like we can't, I mean, I took my first vacation all year and I really only took one day off. Right. And so because we have to answer to investors and constantly keep raising money where there's a, you know, I, the grass is always greener on the other side. Right. I think about right. Right. someone that has a smaller business with a small team or no team and they can go take a lunch break and go work out in the middle of the day where I'm always on my computer. I'm always on my phone. I'm always answering communication and I pay myself a salary. I don't get to pay any sort of like dividends or mm -hmm. any of those things so you know it's a different path i think it's 
fun and nice to be able to go into a store. Like I was in Arizona um, last weekend and I got to go see my product in a store. I live in Minnesota. That's an exciting thing. But at the same time, you know, I'm working my tail off and, you know, I don't see as much of a light as the end of the tunnel. Yeah. So I, I, I guess we have to back up for the audience and, and kind of describe what it is you sell and, and maybe why you sell it. Yeah. So we make cold brew coffee products specifically focused for at-home consumption. So we kind of have like two product lines. We sell ground coffee for people that like to make cold brew themselves. And the brand is Busy Coffee, B-I-Z-Z-Y. And then we also sell essentially brewed versions of those products. So it's a large format, 48 ounce bottle of cold brew. So everything for at home use, we sell only kind of in the grocery stores. So no cans or anything like that. Um, and yeah, we kind of started it in 2013 where my co-founder and I generally frugal people were, we wanted that kind of coffee shop quality cold brew, but we didn't want to pay five bucks for a cup of coffee to us. Mm -hmm. That was crazy especially you know as we get into the story of us being athletes you know we were working a ton we were training like crazy so we were consuming you know three to on some days eight cups of coffee mm -hmm. so like the finances just didn't make sense and so we did a bunch of research looked on the internet and saw that kind of the future of coffee was going to be cold and specifically cold brewed and we kind of have you know a thesis which is obvious but like you want to be solving a problem right uh, for a consumer and it takes 18 hours to make so our thought was people are busy they don't want to spend five bucks for a cup of coffee let's make a coffee shop quality product for consumers at home and then we've kind of danced around a little bit over the last since we officially launched in 2016 uh, to kind of where we are today you know my my initial reaction and anytime you, I see um, a company that's grown, it's still a relatively short period of time. I mean, you go 2016 to now, you know, we're five years. And um, I did a, a little peeking on Amazon with some software, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And I mean, you guys are definitely moving product for sure. Uh, you're not the number one bestseller in the category for no reason. Um, but anytime I see it, you know, it's a coffee company, right? At the heart of it, it you're selling coffee. Like you're not, you didn't invent the new iPhone. You didn't do anything that's, well, I'll say groundbreaking, but you're still like charging pretty hard at a, a pretty good clip. Um, and I, I sometimes maybe psych myself out and I just go like, how do you have the balls to start a coffee company? When, you know, when there's so many other coffee companies out there. You know, and I guess maybe it comes back to just solving that problem, right, where people want the coffee, but maybe it's not in the format or the most convenient way for them to consume it. Yeah, I mean, we we looked at a lot of categories of an analyst kind of by trade. And, you know, so we were analyzing a lot of different segments. Like we were in, really interested in beer, too, because mm -hmm. like we wanted something that we loved the product that was consumable. Right. And so we you know, looked at a bunch of different things and yeah, in hindsight, especially like it's easier for you to look at it when you're in it, you're just like, Oh, I love this thing. Let's like make this <laughs> thing. Let's sell this thing. Cause you're just so passionate. Um, beyond hindsight, I mean, it is, you know, they call it a red ocean cause it's filled with blood of your right. competitors. Right. And, um, you know, we just focused on a small niche at first, which was essentially a, a, a ready to use coffee concentrate sold on Amazon. And it was really a small niche meant to be a small business. Mm -hmm. And then essentially through this world of entrepreneurship and competition, essentially had to raise money. And then in order to raise money, you have to have a large vision for the investors to say, oh, okay, so down the road, you're going to be big. Therefore, I can give you this money today. And so it kind of forced us to be larger and have bigger dreams when even though when we started, it was really intended to be a side hustle mm -hmm. where we were just going to be sell slinging some coffee concentrates on the internet. Um, we're in a very micro niche format where there wasn't really a solution to the problem that we faced at least. Um, and then since then, yeah, now, I mean, we sell bags of ground coffee, which 
is essentially as commodity as it gets. Mm-hmm. And we've been able to command a, a premium price, which I think is key to some of the success that we've had right. is, is in doing that and also being niche because we don't sell hot coffee products. So mm-hmm. we don't, we're not selling K-Cubs. We're not selling, you know, we have a bunch of people ask us like, oh, well, can you use your cold brew grounds for hot coffee? And the answer is, yeah, sure you can. But like, that's not at all what our consumers do or how we message our products. So it's just being like really focused on kind of the niche that we're in. So, I mean, how much does your background, because you didn't like, I guess I'd say, unlike me, where I went from, I worked, I worked like retail because I had athletic aspirations at a college. Um, I worked retail to accommodate that and then left retail to kind of. Um, do what I refer to as the Craigslist hustle, which I'm sure you probably heard about. You just buying things on Craigslist, refurbishing, sell. I did that for a while before I kind of got going in my own thing. So I have no corporate background. So it, it's always interesting to see like the advantages and disadvantages from coming from different places. So how, how does that your experience in corporate America? Because you worked, you know, as you said, you're an analyst by trade. How does that play into you running the company now and kind of going from that, the decision of, hey, this is a side hustle to, no, let's actually make this something bigger? Yeah, I mean, there was definitely pros and cons to it. Um, So I started at Best Buy in essentially supply chain as an analyst and then became a marketing analyst on the Cheerios team at General Mills. Mm -hmm. And so because of that background, I almost was trained to go a very specific path and I had an expectation to go a path. So the the benefits and the pros of that background is that I was viewed as very credible to investors as long as I followed that path. And now as I look at it from a negative standpoint, that path of, because I, again, Best Buy, General Mills, I was supposed to sell my products into the grocery stores. Mm-hmm. And that was the path that we raised money for. But that path is very, very, very difficult and very expensive. And I would say if the kind of the negative to that is it forced me down this path where if I would have come in without that specific expertise, I probably would have just built a strictly e-commerce business. Mm Mm-hmm and would have been able to raise less money and been more profitable from a cash flow perspective mm-hmm. out of the gate. So I think there's certainly something to being naive to a specific um, business because you're just going to come in with eyes wide open as opposed to what you think is a, is the correct path when in reality, you know, it might not be the right path. And, and so I think there's pros and cons to it. Like it, it allowed me to, certainly raise more money but i basically blew all that money following the path which is very very difficult and very bloody as opposed to just being like a wide-eyed entrepreneur it was like oh let's sell this stuff on the internet and that's what we've been very successful at but that's not what the investors invested in but we chose that path as alongside it essentially so pros and cons certainly right right you know something that i don't think people really, and reasonably so, don't pay attention to when they go to the grocery store is like how competitive it is to get products on shelves at a grocery store. I have a little bit of behind the curtain info. Um, One of my business mentors was a food broker for a number of years um, before he had his own kind of food shops here in town and then retired. And um, so when I started, we were always talking food stuff and he's like, Oh, this is what you do. And it sounded insane to me, (laughs) you know? So can, can you, um, I guess give me and us listening to you a, uh, a little bit of primer on what it takes to be successful in like the grocery store game, basically. Yeah. I mean, honestly, you have to be extremely well financed, because getting the product on the shelf is pretty hard. It's pretty competitive, but to get your product off the shelf and into a consumer's shopping cart is so much harder. Um, I mean, we've definitely gotten into stores and then we didn't perform within three to six months and then they kicked us off. 
and you have to pay to get on the shelf. Like literally mm-hmm. you have to write them a check in certain situations. So it's just a, it's very difficult because who you're competing against, like there's a, you go into a grocery store and there's a finite amount of space. So for you to get your product onto the shelf, you have to displace someone else. Mm-hmm. And then you have to perform better than what you displaced. Otherwise, they're going to just kick you off and bring that other product back on because they're incentivized, just like anyone in, in a job. Like, I want to get promoted. My goal is to make more money and get a raise. And you do that by having more profit more profit, and generating more revenue. It doesn't matter if they like you, if you're be- they're your best friend. Their objective is to make more money selling products in their category. So that's like the framework and that's the context. And so you have to navigate all of these very tricky things. Like grocery is probably the hardest of every single retail category. So let's say you want to get into pet food or you want to get into a Home Depot. You got an idea for a nail or something. Um, Those are going to be significantly easier because the grocery store as consumers, right? We've been trained to shop what's on promotion. What's Mm -hmm. a dollar off or what's a buy one, get one. We were just like, whatever's cheaper, I'm buying. Loyalty is almost out the window. Right. Plus you have shelf life with the product on like a nail, which can sit there forever. So there's a ton of complexities and and what we didn't realize, and that came from the industry, right? I thought I knew these things, but you don't even sell your product to the grocery store. You sell it to a distributor who then Mm -hmm. sells it to the grocery store. But you got to get the grocery store to agree to the product before the distributor is willing to carry the product. So it's this really difficult chicken and the egg um, challenge. And most of the way that new brands basically get around it is they say, grocery store, I will pay you. And this is like 10 figure checks. Let's say you're getting into a hundred store chain. They might ask you to pay $10,000 in cash say, hey, I'll pay you $10,000 if you agree to carry my product. Okay, I'll give you six months to test the product. Then you got to go to the distributor and say, okay, now now I got this retailer on board. Will you pick it up? Yes, okay. But the deal is, let's say your product sells for $5 on the shelf. you, You don't make $5 because the right. retailer has to make money, but then you actually don't even sell to the retailer. You sell to the distributor. So you may sell your product for $2 or $2.50 and the consumer pays five bucks. So the margins are really slim and you have to be what's called high velocity. So the product has to sell a lot of units in order to make it. Because if you're only making 50 cents on a unit, you got to sell a lot of units to cover salaries and mm-hmm. marketing expense and all those things. So, um, yeah, you know, it's it's definitely super challenging, but if you have a good idea um, and it's something that's consumable, there's there's a lot of opportunity there. But, um, you know, it's just really, really competitive, especially in the last, we'll say, seven years with kind of the better for you movement. Um, almost every category has been disrupted. And so there's not a lot of places left uh, to innovate, basically. Considering you're the CEO, you know, I'm imagining most of your day is spent, um, you know, coordinating operations. But um, was there a point when you were out actually hustling? I know when I was talking about food and stuff with my my mentor, um, when I was first getting started, he was talking about, yeah, like you personally got to go out to the stores, do product demos. Did you do any of that or are you coordinating any of that? Yeah, I mean, I I have sampled myself probably 200 times. Mm -hmm. Um, I still attend almost every sales call. I still email buyers. I still pick up the phone. I call buyers. I'm probably the chief sales officer if if there was such a thing. Right. Um, Because at the end of the day, I was reading a blog post on LinkedIn yesterday, and it basically said, until you get to a million dollars in revenue, as a CEO, your only job is to sell. You got to, mm-hmm. you got to make, you got to make revenue and cover overhead. Um, so I do a ton of that work still. Um, that being said, I'm also fortunate where I have a co-founder who is our COO. So he does all the coordination and operations. I sell and raise money and make sure that the products and the strategy is, is kind of going in the right direction. Um, so 
and I've lost my train of thought. Um, what what does your typical day look like? Where you know, I know I talked to. I'm trying to remember what episode it was. I was talking to um, if you're in the online ecom space, Ezra Firestone. I had him on mm-hmm. a while ago, and you know he runs his biggest brand is like $30, $40 million a year. And he was saying he basically works like six hour days. Now he's got a team of about a hundred people. So mm-hmm. <laughs> he's got, he's got a lot of things delegated, not quite. He's a little bit bigger than you. Yeah, we are um, a lot bigger. But you know, because I don't think he came from, I don't think he has VC involved. I think it was for him, a series of building and selling companies and kind of, I'll say bootstrapping him way, himself that way and like being his own VC over a period of time, um, he doesn't have quite the same pressures that you might. So are are you able to work six hour days? Are we talking longer than that? What you know, what does your day look like? Yeah, I mean, I'm still grinding hard. Yeah. Um, we you know, we've raised, you know, less than five million, but um, kind of in that general ballpark. And, you know, we're still under the gun is to grow fast and the problem is hyper growth is not in our control because we have to get into retailers and that's not up to us we can't just click increase facebook ad spend right and go from you know x x million to y that that's not in the world for us because again i went down this path of retail so um you know i'm still working minimum 10 hour days and pretty much six days a week I've within the last year forced myself to take Saturdays off. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I was working, you know, seven days a week, 10 hour days at least for four years. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it is because we did go down that path of venture. And I envy Ezra because in hindsight, you know, you don't have to do the shark tank venture capital fundraising strategy. It's actually, probably not the right path for most businesses unless Mm -hmm. you truly have like a hyper scale business where you can plug in one dollar and get back five dollars until you have that um it's just better to to go raise debt or get an sba loan or something that's more conservative where you're going to actually be making profit and because we've been on this you know in air quotes hyper growth business model you know, we're losing money every month mm-hmm. and that puts a ridiculous amount of pressure on the team because you know, at some point you will run out of money if you lose money every month. And there's two ways to cover that. You either sell more or you raise more money. Mm-hmm. And then that gets you kind of in this, I don't want to call it a death spiral, but essentially a reliance on outside funding, which, you know, you basically have to work through that. And so there's really the path of sell, sell, sell as hard as you can to minimize burn rate. And if you're unsuccessful where we, you know, for us to get into more stores, that's not in our control. A buyer says yes or no. Um, And then the alternative is go fundraise. And so you're still selling, but you're selling an investor instead of a retail store. And so, um, you know, long story short, I'm still spending a ridiculous amount of time working way more than I'd like to. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you said, that's kind of the the path you kind of laid yourself out on. And there's not, I, I certainly don't know um, from my inexperience here, how you would even pivot any other direction um, at, at this point. You just kind of keep grinding forward. But, you know, I, I think that's one of the things that it is hard for even myself. And I think I'll say average Joe or you as the listener may, may have a hard time wrapping your head around is that some of these companies um, like Alex's make for all intents and purposes, don't make any money for a long time because they're mm-hmm. trying to gain market share in such a competitive market. And I think the tough part to wrap your head around is how do you stay alive while you're burning all of this cash, which you've already explained, you either, you know, sell more or raise more money. Um, but then where, you know, I personally am curious, like, what's your major burn? Is it is it marketing? Is it employee salaries? Like, what's the biggest thing that draws back? Because I can see, well, if, you know, if, if, if say you've got 10 people, I can't remember how many, I think you said you had 20 people now. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's like, okay, so I have a fixed, you know, if everybody's on salary, 
I've got a fixed expense that I've got to cover. And if we're only selling, you know, 20,000 units this month and it doesn't cover, I need to sell 40,000. Well, then I have a, like a definite goal of this is where we get to break even and then profitable for beyond that. But then marketing obviously is variable. As you said, unless you have something where you're like, put a dollar in and get $5 back. And it's more complicated than that. You can have different return on ad spend depending on what your margins are and your model. Where's your biggest burn? How do you get to that place where you're like, okay, we're no longer burning or at least break even and then moving forward? Yeah, there's kind of like two pieces. So we own a brewery. So you can't really tell here, but behind that wall over there, there's a brewery and it looks like a beer brewery. Okay. And so you know, we have a fixed overhead of just the facility, right? We got rent and we have utilities. That's a fixed right. monthly cost. Right. Then we have the people to operate the facility that are fixed. But where the big challenge is, is there's a lot of equipment in there. Mm-hmm. That equipment costs us a lot of money. Right. And so there's a, you know, we primarily used equity. So we raised money to buy the equipment, but some of it was purchased through debt. Right. And so because it's purchased through debt, there's now a fixed overhead cost to cover as well. Mm-hmm. And so our business, as I mentioned, is very slim margin. So we may make, you know, depending on the product, two to four dollars, one dollar in some situations um, profit per unit. And so for us, like I got this kind of little bottle here, you know, if we're buying one bottle at a time, this bottle could cost five dollars. But if I buy 5 million bottles at a time, it could cost me 30 cents. Right. And so we're in a business where the goal is to get to scaled manufacturing Mm -hmm. because there are very large economies of scale in buying bottles and buying caps and putting more bottles on a semi truck. Because right now, you know, we do what's called LTL, less than truckload. Right. Where we we may ship two pallets to a customer, but I got to pay for the truck. So if I have two pallets versus 22 pallets on the truck, that fixed cost gets spread across every unit. Mm -hmm. And so the kind of the world that we're in, which is why it's so hard, is our competitors are at scale and they basically have an ATM machine where we have to fund losses to get to a level of scale to be able to cover the overhead. But then once you get to that level of scale, it's extremely profitable because your profit margin per unit is pretty decent, but you have to move a lot of units in order for those to add up to cover your overhead. So that's kind of a long, long answer, but really it is the, the facility overhead. And then, as I mentioned earlier, because in the grocery space, we've all been trained to buy, you know, the yellow tag, as we joke about, whatever's on sale, right. we buy. And that, that um, price reduction comes out of my pocket. Mm-hmm. And so when I used to be making two to four dollars, we'll say a unit, I may only make 30 to 50 cents. So mm-hmm. you got to sell a boatload of units to cover that overhead. So that's kind of the world that we're in. But that is because we manufacture the product. Mm-hmm. If we would have outsourced manufacturing, that would have been a little bit different. It just would have been right. a different cost structure. Right. But we were unable to find someone that could create the quality product that we thought we needed to achieve in order to be successful. So now, at least for me, that begs the question, you know, how were you manufacturing in the beginning, you know, kind of getting to where you are now? I know, so like we have a local coffee company here in Kansas City, and the gentleman that started the company actually lives in my neighborhood. He started it in his basement. He bought a a roaster. He bought whatever he could fit in his basement, started Mm -hmm. it there, started just selling like beans and, and that kind of thing. So, so his story kind of makes sense, but thinking about like the equipment you're using to produce what you have now, you know, how does that progression work from starting the apartment, trying to figure out how things work, official launch in 2016, and then moving forward? Yeah. So when we launched in 2016, we actually had a contract manufacturer okay. making it for us. So that okay. was our initial plan. We did not. That was my to- guess. But- yep. Yeah, we did not want to be a manufacturer because it's very expensive and it's very yeah. challenging. You go from just selling a product to managing people to make the product. It's very challenging. Um, but we, long story short, had a terrible um, breakup with our contract manufacturer through some unethical business practices on their end. 
And so we're essentially forced because of a timeline with a product launch in grocery stores, we're forced to start manufacturing ourselves. And so we had to buy a filling line, which wasn't super expensive. It was a, a relatively inexpensive one. But so then what we had to do is we actually started brewing our product out of a kombucha facility. Okay. So we would just pay them a, a small fee when we went to use their space. And then we outgrew that space. We found an old cheese facility that had some vats that we could make it in, where again, we still weren't paying for the equipment, which was the key piece there. Um, we, we worked out of there for nine months, outgrew that space, and there was no more shared spaces for us. And we had to essentially sign a five-year lease, build out our own facility. Um, and then that's where the basically the burn and the, the financial losses really came into play until we get to a level of scale. See, and that's, that's something I wanted to ask you at the beginning was whether you are, you know, you're running three shifts in your facility, which is 24 seven for you listening, if you don't know what I mean, um, or whether you're, you know, hiring out your machines at any point in time. Cause that was another thing that my, my mentor mentioned about the whole situation is, you know, maybe you can find like you you did find somebody who's already got the equipment that you can kind of be your co-packer or just I'll let you use the facility without having to buy all the stuff. And then once you own it, going and being on the other side of that equation to maximize the dollars for all the hours that your equipment are sitting there. Cause you gotta pay, like you said, it's a fixed expense. It's if it's five dollars a month for your equipment, which is obviously a gross understatement. It's $5 a month, regardless of whether they're running all day or whether they're only running two hours a day, you know? So do do you uh, run all day or do you have any time rented out? No, we definitely have downtime. And that, again, puts us in the question of we've raised capital. Right. And those investors, because there's kind of like two very distinct paths. Okay. You are a brand. And you only sell branded products okay. because the, the way that we've built this company is to sell it someday down the road. Right. Which is terrible. You're never supposed to start a business like that. We did. <laughs> Our investors wanted it that way. We needed money. Long story short. And the path is sell branded products only okay. because when you sell your company to, let's say, like Folgers, as an example, we'd love that would be a great partner for us. They don't want to be making someone else's product. They want to just have busy. And so we've had a challenge of our investors only want us to sell our own brand because mm -hmm. you get a higher exit multiple, which means they'll value your business off of revenue. So let's say you're doing $10. They're going to give you five times that. They'll give you $50. Yeah. Where if you're doing $10 in sales and you're making someone else's product, you only net one dollar in profit they're going to give you 10 times that profit so ten dollars so a huge difference in value and so they've almost demanded that we don't do okay. other people's products which is foolish if you think about it just from a pure business perspective because there's downtime and we're still paying for it even though the equipment's not being utilized right so that's where a lot of what my job has been is I got to maximize that equipment because it's a fixed cost. So go sell busy everywhere I possibly can. Mm -hmm. um, and again, but that is because of the path where most manufacturers are just like, if we can make it, we're going to make it because it makes money. We want to cover our costs. But because we kind of went the institutional investor route, they have a plan and a formula that says generate as much revenue with own brand, sell own brand for large multiple of revenue. So, Here's my just most of these questions just come from a place of being naive. Um, so I have to pardon, pardon if I ask anything stupid. Um, even though you're, you're obviously your focus is selling on you know your own products and, and your own brand, if you have downtime, you haven't yet achieved the scale where you know your machines are running all the time. What's the downside to you know running being? A contract manufacturer for somebody and running that extra time to help pay for those fixed costs in the meantime is it a matter of like like say with Folgers if they came in would they say we want a 10-year contract or or I mean I guess I don't understand why you wouldn't say yeah we'll take the money to to continue the machines running 
it's you know it's a different business okay. fundamentally you're selling a service right. instead of a product okay and so it i i am you know i'm on your side i'm like yeah that's obviously the right move well it could, it could be just a, sound. for you it, it can be a, a split in attention too like yes. i can understand that where it's like your focus should only be sell more of this product versus bringing you know bringing new clients on and selling the product. So like, I get that, but it just, like I said, I, I'm just thinking about, well, how do you stem the bleeding <laughs> the quickest? Yeah. And, and, and the bleeding is not so bad anymore. Okay. You know, two years ago, it was fearful. <laughs> I will say. Yeah. Um, it, the bleeding is not so bad anymore because we've gotten to a larger level of scale, but um, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. That's the logical path, but it is a very different business and then to your question there are contracts that get in place and you have to sign up for long-term commitments and agreements and then it just deviates the strategy mm -hmm. um, from just being a branded manufacturer to essentially being a service provider which is again a great business but not the path that we've gone down essentially yeah i think some of it is just trying to get beyond my own head and my own like risk tolerance because i personally like um like low level commitment in terms of capital and high potential of return where mm -hmm. I can test some, I can test something out cheap and just throw it against the wall and say, Hey, does this have any wheels on it? And if it does great, like I'll throw more money at it. If it doesn't, then I'll shut it down and I'll move on. You know, there's when you've got to buy equipment and you start you know, raising capital, selling equity, raise, you know, raising debt, doing all these things. Then I guess I start to sweat bullets I go, oh, never mind, which is probably why I do what I do versus <laughs> what you do. It's just not my risk tolerance level. So that's when that's kind of where those questions come from is just me on a personal level going, yikes, like that I would I would be stressed out a lot. So do you I mean, do you experience that or are you pretty oh, comfortable yeah. because I of mean, the corporate background? No, I mean, everything you said, I feel as well, but we're kind of in the point of no return. Right. And the second that we brought in institutional capital, which are professional investors, because we needed a lot of money, yeah. um, there was kind of no turning back, you know, because there's all these contracts in place. This is this is the plan. This is the right. path to deviate from the plan requires all this sign off. That's not what people signed up for. So, no, I mean, it, it does. You do sweat bullets and it's extremely challenging. And, you know, that's what makes you realize this is not a get rich quick it's a long-term endurance thing which is why i think the athletics has helped so much especially as an endurance athlete because like left foot right foot and just keep keep going forward and uh, you gotta the path is clear there's no questions about what we need to do it's just mm -hmm. you just gotta keep going and, and put in the work but um no i mean it definitely is stressful it's less now than it was we'll say two three years ago when it was really uncertain if we had product market fit but now that we do, the path is pretty clear. Uh, the, the timing is still unclear, but we know exactly what we got to do. So that's helpful, at least. Yeah, yeah. Um, that makes me think about, since you do ultra-endurance events, and as I mentioned at the beginning, and I had asked you before we got going, uh, you know, clarification on that, because like, a lot of people specialize. They're they ultra-runners, they ultra-swimmers. Uh, I had, I've, I'm sorry, I've forgotten her name right now. I had a lady who uh, does stand up paddleboard in ultra, like ultra fashion. She paddleboard from Cuba to Florida. Um, Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> so one of only two people to have done that. So, you know, I've had a number of people on, but most people specialize and you seem to just say uh, to hell with it, whatever, whatever it is, I'll do it. Um, so is that, is that the stressful? It's like, okay, at the end of the day, like, I just got to go get on the bike for a while. I got to go run for a while. Or does that add to the stress? No, I think for me, I'm with this world of entrepreneurship. I've learned that there really is no finish line. Mm -hmm. And it's just really difficult and challenging to just like work so hard so long without knowing when it's going to be over, essentially. Mm -hmm. And as a person, that's like very difficult for me. My personality does not mesh well. So I've found that for me, I need to have something that's not work related, that has a start and a finish that's extremely challenging. And mm -hmm. so for me, I just want to always be so like 2020 was tough because all my races got canceled. 
Right. And so it was just like a year of grinding with no end where I just love to be able to try something new because, you know, in my role, I'm going to be doing something different next month than I did last month. And so the variety, I think, is important for me to just like quickly learn something, push myself to the absolute limit, but importantly, have a start and a finish and then be able to like, because I love saying, OK, I'm going to go like we did. Uh, the first thing I ever really did was called the world's toughest mutter. It's a 24 hour race. And it was like, OK, I have a goal. I know when the day is. My goal is to get first in this race. Totally unrealistic expectation, but like, all right, I'm going to get first in this thing I've never done before. And then it's, OK, now I'm going to go engulf myself in this community. I'm going to find a mentor. I'm going to learn what they did. And it's kind of this, like, I think Tim Ferriss calls it, like, just-in-time learning, mm -hmm. where it's like, I have this goal. It's crystal clear to me. I'm going to learn as much as I possibly can about it as quickly as possible create a plan, execute it, and see what I'm capable of. And I love the idea of doing that in different disciplines because I can try something new. That's something that I love. Personally, I get bored relatively easily, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, I did that one. I accomplished it. Maybe I'll try it again next year to see if I can get better. Um, and then I'm going to try something else. So like we did the 24-hour race. I say we, this is my co-founder, myself. We did the 24-hour race. We did that for three years. The first year, we got sixth place. The second year, we got uh, fourth place. The third year, we didn't even finish. And I was like, all right, the competition has gotten too stiff. I will not be getting first. Let's find a new goal. Yeah. And then it was, okay, what's something else that's extremely challenging that has maybe even a better brand or a more tight-knit community? And so then we said, all right, let's do Iron Man because people that are Iron Man are like, it's a cult essentially. And everyone's heard of Iron Man. Yeah. And let's just go do it. And we hadn't even done a triathlon before we did a full Iron Man. Mm -hmm. Didn't even do an open water swim. It was like, let's just go do this thing. Um, and so how, how long did you train for before you did it? The Iron Man was in June and we started training, I think the last week of December the year before. So it was okay, just over so six months. Cool. See, that's funny. That's how you just, the way you were like, oh, let's just go do it. I ha I've had one other person on the show, Will McGough, who wrote a, a book, Swim, Bike, Bonk, about his adventure doing that. And he did it in three months, basically. Jeez. And just said it was, he didn't know whether he'd finish. Um, mm -hmm. And I actually won't tell you whether he did finish or not. You got to read the book back, back to him. But it, it always, I, I have another show uh, on the YouTube channel. I just talk about running and I always tell those people not to do that shit <laughs> because mm -hmm. there's such a high incidence of injury when you get to yep. like such a long distance in such a short time. Um, and then you, people like you come along and make it look possible. So shame on yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I do not recommend it at all. I mean, yeah. we, and it was at elevation, right? I'm in Minnesota right. we did it in Denver or Boulder. So like, terrible experience you know finished yeah. it but absolutely barely i walked the last 10 miles yeah. and i'm not a walker right so right. got my butt kicked but the goal was just get the w finish it i kind of had three goals it was like i think sub 13 hours goal one i think it was before the sunset uh was goal b and then goal c was finished with a smile so got that last one there was a, yeah. there was a finish it was a fake smile but we got it done yeah so I just, is it a matter of just pick the biggest, baddest challenge you can find and jump headfirst into it? Or, I mean, how do you end up in ultras? Because everybody comes to ultras. I'll say ultras as a general thing here, obviously. Mm -hmm. Everybody comes to that challenge from a different place. So, I mean, is that it? Just saying, all right, what's like, what's the most rad thing I can think of or find and going and doing it? Yeah, I think when I, I was probably in my early to mid twenties, I was like working corporate and was really, you know, people have to say their midlife crisis. I had a quarter life crisis. I was like, God, I kind of hate my job. I'm not really fulfilled. I need something extra. And I feel like I couldn't, I couldn't get promoted. I couldn't get more work. So I was just feeling like I wasn't um, being fully utilized. And I just kind of had this like moment of clarity where I was like, I just need to see what I'm capable of. Mm -hmm. And at the time I had done one of these tough mutters, there was a 24 hour version. 
it was like right when the death race and the uh, Spartan race were becoming a thing. And I was like, I'm going to just join this clique of people that are just trying to see what they're physically capable of. And it was mm-hmm. the simplest one. I had done one of them. So I was like, all right, I'll just sign up for this thing with my friends. And that was truly the intention was just like, what physically, mentally, emotionally, like how far can you push yourself? And I was hoping that was going to be a kind of a, a correlation to the rest of life, right? Mm-hmm. I think probably most crazy endurance runners are somewhat prophetic in that way of like, that's a correlation to life. And um, yeah, once we did that race, basically, um, it was like, okay, we completed it. Wasn't very successful the first year, but finished it. Just not ultra competitive about it. And then it was, okay, well, I've done this now. Now, what's that next thing? So I certainly don't want to go backwards, you know, mm-hmm. want to continue to improve. And then, yeah, now it's just like, what else is next? Uh, and what's the next biggest, baddest thing that we can do? But of course, now we have time constraints, so we're kind of limited to those. But hopefully down the road, uh, we can do a little bit more of them. One of the things that surprises me sometimes is, you know, I spent I spent a number of years um training pretty heavily up to the point I was training between 15, 20 hours a week doing like half iron mans at that point. Um, you know, trying to get overall spots and people would say, Oh yeah, like I do full iron mans. I only train like eight hours a week. And I'm like, I don't, I just, it doesn't even register in my brain that that is reasonable yet. People still do it and seem to get, pretty good results out of it um depending on their genetics obviously uh but i would say at least in a uh, maybe moment of hopeful um not inspiration but uh, a note of hope for you is that you can probably do more with less training than you think you can so even though like you're working crazy amounts and hopefully there's a point when you can pull that back a little bit like I know there are tons of people that can just put in a little bit of time and still go out and do, you know, some of that bigger stuff uh, as long as they're consistent with it over Mm -hmm. time. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, and I think there's really like, you know, I I look at the race community and whatever it is, whether you're cycling, you're running, you're kayaking, like whatever, right. Especially with endurance. I think there's just like two types of, of people and there's competitors and there's completers. Mm-hmm. And like when I did the 24 hour race, like we were competers, we were, I mean, all I thought about wake up, go to bed, eat every meal, everything was focused on winning that race. Mm-hmm. And then with Ironman, it was like, just get across the freaking finish line. Yeah. Like, I, like, yeah, I had a goal time, but like a 13 hour goal time isn't even like that fast. You know what I mean? Right. So like, um, that year was really just like, just complete the damn race. Let's just finish this thing. And so I've been on that like completer track for a couple of years. And I think, you know, once you have the mindset of, well, I know I'm going to finish, like doing the Ironman, doing the 24 hour races, there's never a question in my mind if I'm going to finish or not. It's just like how fast. Right. And so now it's more of a fun thing just to remind myself of like, go do something epic. Like last weekend, I mentioned I took my first vacation to Arizona, first vacation all year, like one day off. And did a hike from the rim to the river and back in a day. And you're not supposed to do it. People die every year doing it. And it was like, let's just go kick our butts for a day. Remind ourselves what this feeling is like. Uh, But I knew I was going to finish. Even though it was extremely challenging. Knew I was going to finish. Just not in a record time. Now, maybe this is, uh, maybe I don't want to concern your investors. Um, but do they make you do like executive physicals? And they're like, all right, make sure like Alex is going to go kill himself while he's <laughs> doing one of these. Well, you know, worse, what they do is they force us to get this thing called the um, key man insurance. Okay. Which is a life insurance policy, essentially. Right. right. And so we have to pay every month to make sure that like if Andrew, my co-founder, or I die from doing something, mm-hmm. that there's an insurance policy on the business so that they can go hire someone to take care of it. So that's, they're, they're using the business way around it. So right. like, yeah, you can do whatever you want, drive your motorcycle to work, but like you're, the company is paying for it. Mm-hmm. That, see, and I hadn't heard about that, but I, when you're thinking about like how much money gets involved in investing, it, it is, doesn't seem um, crazy that that exists, you know, cause if, if, as you said, if you're the key 
figure in the business and then suddenly you're gone for whatever reason, whether, you know, a, a pigeon picked you up and flew you off into the sunset or you fell off your bicycle and cracked your head. You know, that's obviously a major uh, issue to, to have to get resolved. So just it's interesting to peel peel the layers back behind kind of like startup land and, and what you guys go through. Um, yeah, it's it's funny because like after I was at the General Mills on the Cheerios, I worked in their capital division. And, you know, I thought I knew all of these things, but as you get further down, I mean, all this specific language in these contracts is just so specific to this like venture capital startup world where, you know, there's things like directors and officers insurance. So if an executive says something and gets sued, like the people that work for the company aren't liable and there's this key man insurance and there's all these like really crazy things that are huge industries that you don't even know about as a business owner until you sign a contract and you're forced into kind of doing these things. So yeah, right. it's a definitely constantly learning every day, which is good, exciting. Um, but yeah, there's just a lot of complexities to it for sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, Alex, I think it's great that you'll be the first person I ask this to. So each season we're on season three, you're the first episode of season three here of the show. I ask a question to everybody for the entire year. Um, something that kind of goes beyond genre or a particular discipline of sport, jobs, and all those kind of things, um, because we all come from different places. And I think it's interesting to see how people approach these questions. So last year, I was asking people what they thought the purpose of sport is. But for you, get the first person to answer this question, I'd like to ask you, how do you stay motivated after failing to reach a goal? Yeah, I mean, I think for me personally, it really goes back to goal with a deadline. So, like, I've failed a ton of times. I mean, more than I could. This would be a 10-hour show for me to talk through year one. <laughs> and, you know, I think for me, it's just always having the next one and just getting back up on the horse and knowing I'm going to complete it. So, like, that 24-hour race, the third year we failed. Like, we didn't even finish the race. It was so hard. We were so drained. We were so under-trained. We just failed. And it's just like, get the next goal, but it's critical to have a deadline that you're doing the thing and then completing the thing because you can, you know, you have just like, you have the line in the sand, you can see when it's going to be, and then you just know if you're successful or not. And, you know, if you fail once, then do something that's going to be a little bit easier to get yourself back going again and then get back and progressively get kind of more and more. And that's what I've found to be successful for me. Sounds good. I think that's a, the reason I ask is that, you know, you see all these like motivational posters and videos and people seem to feel like they lack motivation. Um, but sometimes it, maybe it's, I think maybe it's easier than that. Like you said, having a, uh, you know, a definite goal, a definite timeline, things that basically you have to be accountable to, to get you moving again. So I appreciate you answering that. Um, Alex, if people want to buy Busy Coffee, if they want to see what you're up to, where can they do all that? Yeah, check out busycoffee.com, B-I-Z-Z-Y, or go to Amazon, search Cold Brew Coffee, we'll pop up. Um, give us a shout, follow us on social. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn at Alex French. All right. Thanks for hanging out with me today, Alex. Awesome. Thanks so much. It was a blast, Jesse.